Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband, our daf of the day, Masachi Kiddushin, daf Yud Gimel, page 13. Um, I hate to say this, but I'm going to start on the bottom of the previous daf because the cases become, I find them to become very interesting and they're illustrating principles and disputes amongst the sages that, you know, the our daf begins in the middle of the dispute. So that's why I want to see it from the a few lines back on the previous daf. So we're still talking about Kiddushin, and we're talking about Kiddushin betrothal done with all kinds of things, you know, that we don't even know what they might be, some of them, um, where the idea is that it's worth a pruta, it's got that value, but this is going to be exactly the discussion. Does it have the value? Does it not have a value? So in this case, the man is betrothing the woman with a mat of myrtle branches, meaning, I guess it's woven, right? And they said to him, that's not worth a pruta. So, which makes me wonder if maybe a pruta in that time was worth more than I think that it was, because I would think that a mat woven of myrtle branches would be worth something, but maybe not. So he says, and let her be betrothed then with the four dinar, which is, you know, silver and much more valuable, that are wrapped in the mat. It's, you know, like a surprise present for her. So they, the woman took the mat and then she was quiet. She didn't respond. She didn't, right? So her, the assumption then is going to be that since she accepted it, that counts, right? Like she's not arguing, she's not throwing it away or anything like that. Amarava, um, and this is the part that we care about because it's going to lead into the to our daf today. Amarava um, So Rava says this silence that's you know after the money is given. Um, he, I'm sorry, he defines it as silence after money is given. And he says any silence after money is given is nothing. Meaning he's got a principle as a general rule that when somebody gives you something that's worth less than Shavapruta, less than Apruta, sorry, then, you know, it's not clear that she's accepting or not accepting the betrothal. Rather, her silence here does not count as, yes, she's accepting it. Meaning if you might have thought, and I might have thought, for example, that the very fact that she doesn't say anything to counter her acceptance of it, it would mean that she's account- she's accepting it. Rava says, no, there's money here. And when money's involved and there's no comment afterwards, it doesn't necessarily mean that she didn't mean to become betrothed. Meaning maybe, uh, maybe she was accepting it and maybe she wasn't accepting it. It's just not a clear thing. So then we have to understand the proof for Rava here, because again, usually we have this principle we've talked about in the past, that somebody who is silent is as if they are acquiescing to whatever is before them. Amar Rava, mana amina why do I say this? Titania amar la, kinsi sela zo bapikadon, v'chazar v'amar la hitkachili bo, b'sha'at matan ma'ot, mekudeshet, l'achar matan ma'ot ratzta, so Rava brings this bright though, where it says the following case. The man says, take this sella, right? That's a more valuable coin. Take it as a deposit, so to speak, to, to hold on to, a, a collateral. And then he goes back to her and says, okay, that thing that I gave you as collateral, be betrothed with it. Now, if he says it when he gave her the money, then that's betrothal, right? 
it's worth a pruta. She's accepted it. It's fine. But if he says it after the money was given, right, then we have, you know, yet the next case, which is the concern here. So it says if she wanted to be betrothed, then that counts as betrothal. Her willingness to be betrothed by accepting this and so on. But if she did not want betrothal, then the fact that he had deposited money with her as a collateral does not, and then says afterwards, oh, now use that as betrothal. If she doesn't want to be, then she's not being it. Like the fact that she's accepted the money as collateral does not make it betrothal. My ratsta, my low ratsta. What does it mean that she wants or she doesn't want? Now I'm coming to the top of our dafki amralo nami havekidushin. So what happens is we say, we might think, right, the, the obvious case is that she says yes to wanting to be betrothed or that she doesn't want to. She says no. And so then you can say that it's an explicit statement on her part. But the issue really is that in this case, right, we don't have an explicit statement. We had seen a case, right, that if she said no, that would also be betrothal. But then, of course, the woman wants to know, am I? How could saying no in a case where her interest in being betrothed is exactly the determining factor, how could she end up betrothed? She said no. So it says, if you want, if she wants it, she says the affirmative, right? An actual yes. But if she doesn't want it, then all she has to do to make it clear that she doesn't want it, she doesn't have to say low. She can just be quiet and that will count as no. And there is Rava's position, right? The fact that somebody, the fact that the woman is silent after accepting the coins, you know, it's a totally different context of, it's it's a totally different moment. It's not the moment of betrothal. And therefore her silence does not count as acceptance because we've just said being, she, she has to actively accept them for it to count as acceptance. And if she says nothing, then there's no betrothal. So let's take it back to this case. The case of the mat with a myrtle, the mat made of myrtle branches with the money within it, and she doesn't say anything, but she's just accepted coins. So doesn't that mean that saying nothing is not accept is not accepting the kiddushin the way Reva said? Now in Pum Nahara, right, which is a place in Bavel, they have a difficulty with it. Tashu ba b'Pum Nahara mishmei Rav Huna b'Reidu Rav Yoshua mi Dami. Namely, the question is: Is it really comparable? Because Hatam. They gave her, the guy gave her the money in the, the first in the Breita case, he gave her the coins as collateral. Meaning, therefore, she's gonna think like if I throw them or I you know toss them aside or whatever, she's got them as a picadon, she's got them as a collateral where she's responsible for the protection of these I, this coins, whatever that has been left in her possession. So, you know, wouldn't she then be obligated to pay for them? So she's not going to destroy the property or anything like that, because that's like their first contract, so to speak. Their first agreement is about something else, not Kiddushin. So then the silence, you know, is about um, is about exactly this. It's about the fact that she's continuing to she's going to continue to hold on to it as a collateral. And but she's not she's not saying no to betrothal. She's saying nothing which counts as a no to betrothal because she still got this other job with regard to the same stuff, the same um, coinage, whatever. But 
But in this case, he gave her the mat and said, you know, be betrothed to me. This is supposed to be the Kiddushin. And if she's if she doesn't want to be betrothed, right, then she could just get rid of the mat. So then the quiet response, the lack of response from her, is uh, the the tacitness of it doesn't automatically mean no as Rava was willing to accept from that bright about the collateral because it's not a case of a collateral where they already have that previous situation about you know her protecting his stuff. In this case, it's straight up betrothal, and wouldn't she then have to like discard it or give it back to him or toss it aside or whatever for it to be a, a negative response? Um, Rav Achai doesn't like that option. Are you going to say that every this is like we could be so offended by this, Yordina? <laughs> or are women that learned in halacha? Are she really going to know the particulars of this? You know, silence versus not. You know, one silence meaning one thing and a different silence meaning another thing. So rather, we could say maybe she's thinking that if I throw this, you know, the mat, whatever. If you want to say that she's going to think. She's gonna. If I break them, I'm gonna be responsible. So I'm not gonna throw them. That doesn't mean you don't automatically say that's why she wouldn't throw the coins in the betrothal case, right? Rather, Rav Rav I'm sorry, Rav Rav They still have this conundrum. What she's supposed to? Do, what What does it mean when she says nothing in the case of the mat? So they sent the question to Ravina. Ravacha, but Rav sent the question to Ravina. It says, what's the halacha? Ravina says, well, we never heard this case of Rav Huna that you just, you know, that you told us before. So we don't need to take that into consideration. We don't need to worry about the statement of Rav Huna. You and you who did hear it, who did hear it, you have to worry that maybe, in fact, they are betrothed, not that the quiet, that the silence is an automatic negation. I find so much about this to be so interesting and and worthy of so much more delving in, right? The, even just the, the end of the transfer of the question to other Rabbanim who say, but I didn't ever learn that, so I'm going to go with my learning. You have to worry about your learning because you heard it officially, right? Whether this woman is betrothed or not. And I feel like, Maybe just talk to her, right? Like, ask her, what did she mean when she didn't say anything, when she, you know, was given this mat that she accepted? Was she thinking about Kedushin and accepting it, or did she not? But that's not part of the story here. So, I, you know, two things that strike me about this passage. First of all, this whole idea that, like, the man sort of, like, I, I, there's almost like a, I, I'm going to be bold, like, almost like a sexual harassment piece here, where he sort of says, like, I'm going to give you this or you're going to take this for me. And, you know, then it's Kedushin and she's silent. I, there's something about these cases and we've seen them on a few Dappen, you know, where it's sort of like he's instigating in a way that makes me deeply uncomfortable. And again, I totally understand that I'm reading this very modernly, but I don't know, like they're bothersome. Like, why is he starting up with um. the idea? The idea is like, you know, like, like, it's almost like, is this how like accidental Kedushin happens in those days? So to me, it was more a matter of like, if she says, yay, thank you so much. I love you. Let's go get married. Then you don't have a case. 
right? Like, there's nothing interesting about that. They should just live and be well, right? But can the you only imagine time... what that's like for someone? Like, someone sort of tries to trick them or get them or force them into Kedushin? Like, that's how those stories read to me. So I think that they're, I, I guess part of the question is, like, let's put it this way. If it really happened, and that's why we have a map with Myrtle Bench, this is a very specific case, right? Like, if it really happened and she didn't say anything, so then it's an interesting conundrum. Like, what really just happened? Did she not say anything because she was uncomfortable? Or did she not say anything because she didn't? She felt she didn't need to? It was obvious that she was accepting the Kedushin. Meaning, I feel like, that's why I say, like, go ask her, talk to her, find out what's going on. But if it's an abstract case with a, an unusual example, right, for the sake of us being able to know what would happen in the interesting case of a woman who didn't respond, and now you have to figure out was that Kedushin or was that not Kedushin, where you can't ask her for whatever reason, right? Like, I feel like that's, I don't mean that they're pushing the envelope, but I think that they're trying to establish the parameters of the halacha, and they don't need to do it if she's verbal, verbally involved, because then they know the answer. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I just find, like, we've seen a few of these cases, you know, and I there's something about them that makes me uncomfortable. And then even this piece where they said, like, how could a woman know this halakha anyways, right? Like, that one, that almost, one I'm right, with like you. It's almost in a way like the men know the halakha and they can manipulate it to get the answer they want, but the woman for sure wouldn't be able to answer in a way to manipulate the halakha. I, I don't know. There, there was something about this stuff, this particular Ahmed, that was very bothersome to me. I hear it. Meaning, I, I don't share this discomfort in this case. Um, I even think that the guy, the 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 guy, the sage who says, you know, can we really assume that the women would really be knowledgeable in this halacha? I, I I don't like the fact that the assumption is that they would not necessarily be. Well, but I think true. that that was accurate. women wouldn't have been right. taught this. I mean, I think it just shows you why it's good that women do know these things today. That for sure. Okay, I'm going to move on now to Ahmed Bet. Um, so Ahmed Bet deals actually with a bunch of different cases that veer a little bit from uh, Kedushan, where it says, Hazar Yate Amre, right? Um, and uh, essentially what happens is on the bottom of Ahmed Aleph is, you know, Rav Ashi dies, and they want to go through uh, a bunch of his statements, essentially. Um you know, that they, uh, you know, so these are some of the statements that they collected um, that they want to go through. And there's an interesting one that's presented on Amud Bet. Hatzitznan, right? We learned in a Mishnah. And this is a Mishnah from Kenan from chapter two, Mishnah five. Ha'isha she'evia chata umeta yavio yoshin olata. So we're talking here about a woman who after childbirth, right, we know needs to bring uh you know, a, a, a chatat, right? And there's a whole interesting thing. Why do you bring a chatat, uh, you know, a sin offer, offering as part of her uh, procedure to become a tahor again because your tummy after you give birth and she died, right? What happened? Her heirs actually bring the burnt offering. So in other words, it's almost like the chatat is brought for her even after she died. Very interesting Mishnah and halacha. Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. So Rav Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, V'hu shehi frishta mechaim. About lo hi frishta mechaim lo. So Rav Yehuda says in the name of Shmuel, this is the halacha when the woman already designated the animal for this chata. But if she didn't even get to that, then the heirs don't need to bring it. And this sort of makes sense. That in other words, 
yes, if the animal had already been designated, so the heirs go ahead and they sort of fulfill this and bring this chatas on her behalf. Um, and if they didn't, then they wouldn't. Now, I think also this is one of these mitzvahs that you read, which like, obviously this had to be a case that came up a lot. Like we know that childbirth was very dangerous in those days. And this was probably something that actually happened, unfortunately, probably relatively uh, commonly. Um, so the Gemara then goes on and says, So the conclusion from this discussion is, is that Shmuel must hold that the property of the debtor, right, is not leaned by Torah law. In other words, what this is saying is, is that one, one doesn't say that she has to bring the, that when she is required to bring the chatas, it's as if there's a lien on her property and the debt needs to be paid even if she did not set aside the animal before her death, right? That, in other words, what, what, uh, you know, what, what, what one way to look at this would be is like, she owes something, right? She owes this chatas and therefore the chatas is like a debt and it needs to be paid, right? But apparently that's not really what Shmuel is saying. I'm a Rav, I'm a Rav Yassi, I'm a Rav Yochanan. So Rabbi Asi says that Rabbi Yochanan says this is the halacha actually, even if she did not separate it in her lifetime, which would mean that according to Rabbi Yochanan, yes, it is like the property of a debtor and it is leaned by Torah law. In other words, Shmuel says the distinction has to do with whether or not that animal was designated beforehand. And since it was designated, yes, it should be brought. If it wasn't designated, you don't need to bring it because it's not like a debt that needs to be repaid. But Rabbi Yochanan says no. You do need to bring it, whether or not the animal was designated. And therefore, it's like a debt that needs to be repaid. Um, and so the Gemara then goes to say that actually we see this disagreement in other places as well. Um, and they go through, uh, a, you know, uh, and here is interesting uh, that really the disagreement is not between Rav and Shmuel or not between Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish or normally Bar Palukdas, but it's rather it's Rav and Shmuel. And it's Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish. Now, again, Rav and Shmuel are a little bit younger than Rabbi Yochanan, but they sort of all like, Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish are first generation Amorayim in Eretz Yisrael, and Rav and Shmuel are first generation Amorayim in Babel. But Rav and Shmuel did learn in Eretz, you know, Rav learned in Eretz, they learned in Eretz Yisrael for a period of time, and then they went to Babel. So the Gemara goes on to say, right? Yes, they already disagreed about this. The Rav, you know, once, right? And um, and the Rav Ushmuel to Amri Chavai, the Rav and Shmuel both say, Milva al Peh, Ena Gavoa min Hayarshin, Velo min Halakachot, that if there was a loan granted by an oral agreement, in other words, there's no document that places a lien on the land, if the debtor dies, right, then the creditor can't collect the loan. But Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish to Amar Travai, but Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish, they both say Melaveh Al Peh Goveb Min Hayorshin, right? That there is this, you know, sort of loan, verbal loan out there. Then the 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 creditor can collect from the heirs, Ubena um, Lukhot, or from that, you know, from who purchased from the debtor. So this shows that there already was a machlokas previously between uh, the Chachamim about whether or not there can be a lien on a property that exists by Torah law without having a document. And so they're saying that this is sort of parallel to this case of the woman who dies after childbirth and, and needs to give it. And then the Gemara is going to go through, why do you need to teach both cases and, and what, the purpose of, uh, what the purpose of that is? But I think 
the essence of this machlokas, right, is very interesting, right? Does, does, are there cases where, right, where there is something that you need to pay, something that, right, either that there was like a loan or a purchase that was put out there or somebody owed a chatas. Notice that it, it could either be whether it's something between people or sort of something that you owed to God, right? Um, and the question becomes, you know, after death, do you still owe that thing? And, and Rav and Shmuel and Rav Yochan and Rish Lakish have fundamentally very, very different approaches uh, to how to actually uh, solve that. I think one of the things that is most interesting about these kinds of cases is the, like the opposite of a tangible benefit, right? Like if somebody gives you something that is worth a pruta, like now you're, I mean, like a mat of, of, of willow branches or, or a hadassim, whatever, or a blue marble, or nowadays a gold ring, right? All of these things are something physical, tangible. They've given it to you. There it is. And you can evaluate it on the value of it, meaning how much does it really, how much is it worth? When you start talking about like the benefits somebody gets from having been loaned, like all of these cases, I find it to be um, fascinating that there's an acknowledgement that that also it warrants a monetary value. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think it's, you know, I, there's such fundamentally different cases and it's interesting to see, right, whether it's, you know, property between people or this case of the Chazit, it's just interesting to see that they make it a blanket rule in both cases. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.